Listen to me. I was born black, I live black, and I'm gonna die probably because I'm black. Because some cracker that knows I'm black better than you, nigga, is probably gonna put a bullet in the back of my head. Welcome to the Afrocentric lesson plan. Hello, and welcome to the Afrocentric lesson plan. I am Nas. I'm Tiz. Hello, hello. So, today we'll be discussing three different things. One will be the missing DC girls. The other topic will be empowering educators of color conference that was recently held here in Providence, Rhode Island, and the decision to PhD, EDD, or not to do any any of the PhD or EDDs. How are you feeling, Tess? I'm cool. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. Um, so let's jump head first in. So, for those of you who have been keeping up with the news lately, you will see that there has been a outrageously large number of children, primarily um, girls of color, that have, well, all the students, I mean, all the children are of color, primarily girls of color, that have gone missing out of Washington, D.C., um, and have virtually had no news about these children going missing. Tez, what do you feel about that? I think it, it's really hard for me to think through like what that means because I know a lot of folks in our community are grappling with, you know, what can we do now and like what can we do to protect our like our kids, uh, primarily our little black girls. But I think the conversation around that has been um, very problematic for me because a lot of it has centered around like, you know, let's not let our girls leave the house and let's, you know, uh, let's make sure that they, you know, don't go out to the parks and they don't play. And, it, and it's been a hard conversation for me to have. And recently there was a town hall meeting where a lot of black folks showed up and folks made that conversation about white people not being there they turned that into a I, y'all always stand in solidarity with white folks and look look at this town hall meeting our girls and we're missing and there's only a, a, a room full of a thousand folks and only black people came mm. and so thinking about how do we decenter whiteness from these conversations and also how do we not imprison young black children particularly young black girls um under the guise of protecting them has been difficult yeah, um, I think that's a very nuanced um, conversation to have about protecting children, but also giving children the space to be children and to exactly. imagine, to play, and to go out in the world. Just thinking as a parent, um, I I want to say I understand where parents come from when they think, okay, well, if I have to keep you in the house to keep you safe, I will do that. Um at the end of the day, I want to keep you safe. And if anything was to happen to you, Lord forbid, you know. But I, it's, it's just very complex because we can't keep them in the house. We can't keep them locked up and cooped up all the time. Um, and then the world is a very dangerous place for, especially for young black girls, even in the house. The world is still a very dangerous place um, for young black girls. I want to talk about human trafficking a bit um, because that's a very real thing and it has been on the rise in um, communities and primarily East East Coast urban communities. Um, Human trafficking has been on the rise very heavily because you have that I-95 corridor going from um, 
Boston, Massachusetts, all the way down to like DC. You can just get on I ninety five and go. Um, and New York is a very prominent place there. Boston is a very prominent place there. So what happens is, um, and I know all this because I went to a a training on it. They get girls out of DC, out of New York, and they bring them up here. They ship girls from up here and back down south and um or in New York and for like a 12 13 year old girl who never left um Central Falls Rhode Island to like wake up one day and be in the middle of New York City that's a very scary thing um you don't know where you are you don't know where to start to get home yeah um so that's a very prominent issue um you also have these um brothels that are popping up they call them pop up brothels they have underage girls and boys in them um and they set up shop in in apartments and houses and they're very hard to catch and to really get a a handle on because they move um they're never in one location for a very long time they're moving around um very very sketchy stuff very very scary stuff for our kids um who are caught up in the system yeah most definitely and, and uh, a friend of mine carlin he actually just did a documentary on human trafficking and um i attended his documentary it was a part of his senior thesis in his research it was beautifully done and he talks about how um they receive care and treatment and dental care and medical care and folks take care of them and so they're upkept a lot of the girls are sometimes still sent to schools mm-hmm. not the that they were taken from but they still are in school like you know um they still attend regular things and some of the girls don't uh let you know some of the girls and boys because let's be clear boys also being uh trafficked and also being trafficked for more than just sex um there's a black market organ trade so some of your children some of these children are being killed and their organs are being sold um some of these children are being sent to other places um other countries mm-hmm. and so it's i mean it's 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 a diabolical system it's a complex and complicated system and we got to think about ways in which we navigate space but also what do we tell our children about safety and what do we tell them about you know um trust because what happens is a lot of these kids um do have families. The the misconception is that they don't have families and they're only taking people who uh, nobody would ever be looking for them. That's not the case. Mm-hmm. Um, some of these children do have families and have families that are looking for them. But what happens is um, these girls end up feeling, these girls and boys, to be clear, end up feeling protected, right? They're getting medical care. They're getting school. They're getting dental. Mm-hmm. And they feel protected. Or they feel threatened, Tess. Um, right. Or like the person that took well, them is telling them, they'll, I'll go back and take your mom. I'll go back and kill your family. Right. But what I'm, say- what I'm saying is that it's complicated and it's complex. And so sometimes it's buy-in it's almost like stockholm syndrome where the slave would like protect their slave master Mm -hmm. and so being clear that it's a mental manipulation that happens on on multiple levels you also got 16 year old girls and boys in high school um and i can really attest to this from the queer perspective where i witness um guys young guys that will go off and um act as sex workers um, to have a pillow to lay their head on or a hot meal in their stomach. And mm-hmm. there's not, now I don't want to like incriminate sex workers or anything that sex workers do, 
But I think when you're below the age of 18, it's not sex work, it's manipulation, and it's human trafficking. Mm. Um, and that's from a legal perspective. Below the age of 18, you're not an adult. It's not sex work. It's human mm. trafficking. Yeah. So I, And I think that is something to consider. And I think um, as we think through like how we like raise our children to think about themselves and think about their communities and engage with others. I think that con- that 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 idea will become more developed, more evolved because right now we really don't know how to place certain things. Like we don't know how to place trust, we don't know how to place safety. We don't know how to place like, you know, um like subsistence. Like how do you survive? How do you take care of yourself? Mm-hmm. Well, we got to have those conversations. The thing about um, the black community, well, I won't even say the black community as a whole, because I think that's a stark indoctrination or incrimination of the black community. But I think we need to start having real conversations with our kids. Um, I think it starts at puberty. I don't think it starts when they're 18, when they're 16, 17 years old, and they're out there, and they probably already had their first sexual encounter by then. I think it starts at puberty. Um, saying, this is what's happening to your body right now. This is what, you know, this is how you need to protect yourself. Um, I was watching an interview with Kiki Palmer on Wendy Williams, and she was saying how Ice Cube was actually the adult that pulled her aside when she started to develop breasts and told her, look, you can't be hugging everybody from the front like that. You know, everybody ain't got your best interest at heart. Everybody don't, you know, want to take care of you and protect you. You need to keep yourself safe. And that means, you know, you're growing these things now, so you need to, you're growing breasts now, these things. You're growing breasts now, so you don't need to be hugging every male you see front ways. Because every male is not out to take care of you. It's not, it's not loving you in that way. Yeah. And I also think on the flip side of that, beyond um, just what we tell um, girls and boys, we also have to have real conversation with adults, um, men and women, and talk to them about predatory behavior. Because I think a lot of the onus has been placed on what does the ch- what does the child do or what does the victim do and i think a lot of that conversation also has to be shifted on what do those who perpetuate these these like predatory um actions what do they need to do to mm-hmm. um change to address toxic behavior to get themselves help to um seek counseling and mental health help to um to to, to decrease predatory behavior because See, that goes into sexual assault like we need Most to discuss sexual assault, both um, because mo- majority of people who are um, sexual predators are victims of being um, are victims of sexual assault. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's perpetuated from there. Um, so we, and this is not me like siding siding with predators or anything like that. But I think a real conversation needs to be had about sexual health, uh, predatory behavior, sexual assault. Um, with our children, that way we can really start to um, demystify some of this stuff around sex. Um, Because I think sex is a very mystified topic in the Black community, in Black households. Um, Nobody wants to talk about sex. Um, It's taboo. Yeah. Nobody wants to have the conversation about sex um, with, with kids. Um, I can't, I don't remember a time where 
my mother and my father sat me down and said, this is sex. This is what it is. Um, you have a penis. This is what it's used for. Um, babies come from here or anything like that. I can remember being 13 years old and still thinking babies grew in, in, in a woman's stomach. Mm-hmm. And my... <laughs> But that's correct. <laughs> no, well, a baby <laughs> doesn't grow cool. in the stomach, though. I, I'm thinking in the physical stomach. Yeah, that's not correct. The baby grows in the uterus. Oh, oh no, I'm saying. Oh, I'm thinking you saying like I'm just thinking like oh, it's just in her stomach and that's it. No, like, okay, that's. I'm not... thinking stomach acid and all. <laughs> oh, okay, well, like yeah, but I get what you're saying. Like we need to like really explain to children like the process of sex and what sex means and, and what it's about and also not lying to kids like sex doesn't feel good right so like telling the truth about like it's going to feel good you know what i'm saying like because a lot of times like we tell these lies like oh if you hug you're gonna get pregnant and if you touch you're gonna catch an std and i'm like we also need to tell the truth. Like, why do so many people want to have sex? Mm-hmm. Like, if we don't tell kids the truth, they gonna it's gonna be like that red button that you can't never touch mm-hmm. that I want to touch that I'm gonna end up pressing. Mm-hmm. And I think in having these conversations, not just having them for the sake of having them, but having them to really keep kids aware and keep kids safe, having them right. so that kids can be aware and safe because we want to protect them from the world so much. But think about it, we can't. We can't protect them from the world. All we can do is equip them to better be able to protect themselves from the world, um, to care for themselves, to make sure they're okay. Yeah. And my um, one of my mentors, um, she gave an example about when she was growing up, and she was talking about how her mother told him about like you know chat lines and being on hotlines or something like that on the phone or something i don't remember a time with no chat lines or nothing like that but she was like there was a time when you could get on a phone and you would press a number and you could hear like multiple people on the chat line oh you ain't do the chat line I don't know nothing about no chat line. You wasn't on the chat line. <laughs> that was my time, bro. Baby, chat line. Chat line was seventh grade, seventh, eighth grade oh, chat okay. line. Okay. <laughs> this before anyway, Facebook so and, and all that. About, so she was talking about how, you know, after that evolution and the internet came around, she was like, you know, they had chat rooms. Mm-hmm. And she was That's like, AOL you AOL chat stuff. room. And she was like, you know, you would, you know, uh, it's uh, a sex locate ASL or something like that, a sex location, and you'll tell them, you know, I'm 17, uh, female, I live in wherever, mm-hmm. and she was like, you know, you could decide to meet up with folks, mm-hmm. and she was like, that was the extent. She was like, but now we give so much of ourselves away online. You know, we give our birth date, our age, our jobs, our school, our education, and we become a searchable, um, a searchable like thing in the in the internet. And folks like it's easier for folks to track us and to find us. And she was talking about how. You know, if we think about like all this information that we give away and like how we move through space, it is very, very, very easy for somebody to steal your identity or to find you mm-hmm. or to get your email address mm-hmm. or to call you. And it's not just through Facebook. Away. It's not just through Facebook. Like Google have you logging in and tracking your location. Mm-hmm. If you're using any type of Apple device, you're tracking your location. If you're using GPS or any sort, that all could be tracked. It's not just, oh, well, this is unsafe, so I'm going to get off Facebook. 
it is right. literally if you are using Apple Cloud, Google, Google uh, Cloud, or anything like cloud related, you are trackable. Yep. Yep. Um, yep. I don't know if it's to the extent that that's what people are using to traffic kit. Um, that necessarily getting that high tech. Um, could be. Could be. Yeah. Well, I know in Carlin's documentary, he talks about how, you know, um, folks will like change their identity and reach out to you. Maybe, you know, as someone yeah. that you trust and know and kind of lure you in um, or either find someone who who can like relate to you. Sometimes they'll they'll like bring you in for job interviews. Like it's it's it, it's a complicated, complex system. And that's why I tell people it's not one way to place this. Yeah, like, it's a lot going on. That's one hell of a topic. Um, so we're going to move on from that topic with the intent of taking action um, from this place and with this knowledge that we have moving All right. forward. All right. So I want to discuss um, the Empowering Educators of Color Conference that was held yesterday here in Providence, Rhode Island, we had educators of color come together. We had Clint Smith, who's a PhD student out of Harvard um, Education Department, come down and give the keynote address. Um, and I went to two sessions. I went to one session uh, entitled Teaching in Color um, and another session entitled Sharing Our Voices. So... Where do I start? Um, one, I walked in in the morning. I felt very, very uncomfortable because I don't do networking events like that. Is my type of my type of blackness don't sit well with networking and rubbing elbows and playing nice, and that's just not my ski low for some reason. I don't know why. That's just not what I do. Um, but some really cool um people of color came into the space that I was familiar with, that I knew, and then I kind of made friends with new people of color um, as the day went. So it ended up being a really good experience as far as making friends, as far as connecting with new people. Clint Smith. Tess. Mm-hmm. Clint Smith got up there and he read some spoken word poetry as his keynote address. Okay. And the brother is brilliant. Mm-hmm. I don't take that away from the brother. The brother is a brilliant um, scholar. Mm-hmm. But when it comes down to art and scholarship, as an artist, scholar, activist myself, I always look at art through a critical lens um, and what is the purpose of this art? Why was this made? What are you trying to tell me right now? What's the message that I'm trying to get out of this? Um, what What's the end game? Is the end game to make me question something? Is the end game to make me notice something within myself? Is the end game to make me really think um, abstractly about oppression? Like, what, what, what is it that you want me to do? He, some of his poems were very, very good. Some of his poems um, about presidents, and only slaves and all that. I felt like that was really cool. I'm like, okay, that's really cool. 
that's information I knew, but for people that don't know it, you know, this is an opportunity for them to become educated on it. So I'm not going to take an educational moment away from nobody. But I didn't feel like he was really doing the work to address patriarchy and capitalism within his poetry. Right. yeah, so I think folks like Clint Smith, like, and and I like Clint Smith too. I think, but folks like Clint Smith who are uh, awarded his uh, his poetry book, Count Descent, is 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 a literary like it won a literary award. And so, I think sometimes when we win these awards, we feel like it's our duty to use that work because that's the most known work. And sometimes it falls flat. Um, I've heard him speak before. Um, I think he's a good brother. And I think folks approach um, their work in different ways. And for me, I'm, I'm me too. I, I approach my work from an anti-domination a paradigm. Not everybody does that work. Some folks do the work of, um, uh, I, I call it uh, feel good. Some folks do feel good work. Um, so it's it's kind of like anti-racism, anti-sexism, anti-classism work through a feel-good kind of um, perspective. I'm not that way. I'm shockingly pessimistic sometimes. Well, see, very... I, I didn't I didn't want him to be. I didn't want him to be in your face that type of brother. I didn't want him to be that type of brother. But the poems he was saying, I was waiting on, and it, it just felt like he was going to do a critical analysis of patriarchy in his poetry. And I was waiting on it, and he set the patriarchy up fine. But I never got the critical analysis of it. I never got, you know, he talked about how his mom was the lover of the family, and his dad was like, good job, son, and walk away really slowly. And Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, are you going to tell me about you really wanted your dad to hug you? You really want to, like... You do mm. like you hug your kids now because your dad didn't really hug you, or you show you try to make sure you're showing affection as a black man. He, he didn't really do that. He didn't really say it. Yeah, I didn't really hear it in his poems, um, especially when it came down to his poems about fatherhood. Um, and I just thought that was very interesting, especially because this book of poetry was like dedicated to his son or something, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, to to black sons all in all around America. Yeah, I felt like not to be addressing patriarchy directly, and you're you're talking to black males. Um, I felt that fell flat. I felt that yeah. fell very flat. But outside of his work, there was a question in the audience of an older gentleman, and um, he stood up and he asked. He was like, "How do you feel about?" Our students using the word nigga. And they oh, just. Lord. <laughs> they, oh, Lord, <laughs> oh, Lord they use it everywhere. They use it in the halls. They use it in the parking lot. They use it everywhere. How do you feel about our students using the word nigga? Oh, Lord Jesus. And Clint gave a response that I was with all the way up to the last little bit. He was like, I do think language shifts and changes and morphs, and the way we use language is different in context. Um, I think that word is different depending on what context you're using it in and how our students are using their language. I don't think we should police students' language. And um, it was really cool what he was saying. And then the very end, he goes, but I won't allow it in my classroom because it's not allowed on a job. 
Oh, Lord. And that's where I, like, noticeably became uneasy. Because whenever people start relaying their classroom to a workplace, to, like, a place of employment, to a place of economic exploitation, I go, Yeah, but also recognizing, too, that everybody doesn't have a well-developed critique of capitalism, and everybody is not (laughs) anti-capitalist. And so recognizing, some folks are, uh, like, People I'm not gonna just, let that brother off the hook like that, though, Tess. No, 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 no. I'm not letting him. I'm like, no. That's that's critical. Like, that's that's critical to know about somebody that, like, oh, you're not you're not somebody who I can recognize as somebody who's actively fighting capitalism. That's critical. But his work, his like, so in me asking, I asked the question: How are you addressing um, students being valued only for their productivity? And because we know there's a slave mentality that was passed down with black people, we're only valuable based off how much we can work. As you can see in 12 Years a Slave, where Paxi coming down with the cotton, the first introduction to Paxi we get is, ooh, Paxi, you can show, pick a lot of cotton good. Ooh, you pick, pick all these men under the table. You pick all that cotton. You know, she's valuable as right. long as she can pick the most cotton and how much she can work. Right. Um, so I addressed the question as, you know, how do we... Um, divest from a system that only seeks to exploit us and make sure that we're not um, recreating that system in our classrooms mm-hmm. um, and that the classroom is a place of imagination and, and growth and where kids can really discover themselves. He talked about that in his opening keynote. He was like, yeah, I want my classroom to be a place of imagination and growth where kids can really discover themselves. How can they do that within a capitalistic structure right. that only seeks their labor? Um, so I, I posed that question to him and this brother got, this when I realized he went to hog. He got real theoretical with me. Mm-hmm. He got, he started using them 12 syllable words on me. Mm-hmm. And I sat there unflinchingly like, cause baby, you don't know I hang around at Brown, do you? Right. <laughs> you your, your best friend is a Brown grad. I, I don't care. You don't like, know. So. At the end of the day, I think so. I I respect folks like uh, so uh, Harvard's uh, radical teacher, um, collective speaker this year was Dr. Bettina Love, who was also the NICOR's radical teacher conference speaker last year when mm-hmm. me, Jenny, and Candy went to that. And the reason why I'm such a, a stand for folks like Dr. Bettina Love is because Dr. Bettina Love talks about imagination, but it's it's from an anti-capitalist fight back against the system it it, it wasn't created for you mm-hmm. and here even the folks it was created for it don't work for them either you know what i'm saying so recognizing that there is no buy-in for us what? like ain't no buy-in like we, we we not gonna we not gonna function in that system and so that's why i love folks like that so much and the reason why like i do take exception with folks like like clint and i like clint again and not here to drag him at all but I think like once we reach a level of success and once we are recognized on a particular level, we feel like our branding and messaging has to be right so that we'll be invited back to speak. Mm. And I'm not that kind of person. But see, I feel like this brother, especially when he was answering the question, he addressed his research. Um, and his research deals with incarcerated men, incarcerated men of color who are serving life sentences. Mm-hmm. 
that's his that's his whole research. That's his research lens. That's his focus. So mm-hmm. I'm like, how are you doing that work? And I can hear it in his voice once I blew past all twelve syllable words and was like, okay, I know what you're saying. He really has a very critical stance on capitalism and systemic oppression that I wasn't that I didn't hear throughout his throughout his uh, keynote. Again, going back to folks wanting to be invited back to speak, uh, one of my um, one of my favorite quotes, and I can't remember who said it now, is "Show up with the message that you that you need to give, not the one that's going to get you invited back. Show up with the message that you need to give, and not the one that's going to get get you invited back." And so, for me, I look for a speaker to tell me what needs to be said in this space at this moment. And some folks come in with, oh, my God, if I'm too radical, they never going to invite me back. I don't give a damn about being invited back. I show up to make sure that I'm probably almost never going to be invited back. Mm. So, yeah, well, the conference continued. Um, I went to a session on teaching in color. It was a very beautiful session on incorporating student voice and student making sure students are engaged in multiple ways and um it was taught by a teacher that we both love and respect in the community so i'm not gonna say his name um i'm not telling you um (laughs) no i love marco and marco you know marco would not be presenting at this conference you know that oh um i'll tell you off the air but <laughs> he gave some really good teaching strategies, Ted, some best practices. It's a, it's a brown grade. Uh, and he gave some really good teaching strategies, and I love what he had to say. What I didn't like that he didn't address is that if you do these strategies in certain places, you will get fired. And I think being honest and truthful and forthcoming with that information that if you're really doing this work, if you're really about this work and you're really doing the work of liberation and um, aiming to give students the tools they need to liberate themselves from oppressive structures, you're going to get fired. If you're not in a place that loves you, if you're not in a place that supports you, if you're not in a place that is going to have your back or administration is going to have your back, you're going to be fired. They're going to let you go because when they hired you, they didn't want you to come in there with all that radical stuff. They want you to come in there and just be a black face to do what they say. Yeah. yeah you there for, you there for social regulation. You there to, for feel good. You there for uh, representation matters. You there to make sure that we're not catching the lawsuit because none of our teachers are black. Yep. You there to make sure that affirmative action is taking place in this building. Yeah. So don't you dare have a voice. Don't you dare have an opinion. And don't you dare come in here and try to liberate our black children because we like them the way they are. Mm. Yeah. Um, but this brother gave some really good strategies. I just, I took, um, I didn't like the fact that you know, it wasn't addressed that if you do these strategies, you... He graduated with me? No, Tess. What? Who graduated with you that would be doing a conference? At, 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 um, in Providence? 
I don't know. I'm trying to see now. I'm, I'm That's so black cute. or Latino. A black or Latino brown grad. Stop being so damn messy. <laughs> uh, a black or Latino brown. Grad. But I love, and if the brother is listening to this, um, to this show, I love your message. I love your your session. I love your strategies that you're doing in your classroom. I think it's something that needed to be done and said. And I even raised this inside the session. I raised my hand and said, "I love all these things. I think it needs to be said that." To enact these things in certain classrooms, you're going to be fired. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that people need to know up front. If we're trying to equip people to go out into the teaching world, I think that is something teachers need to know up front, especially teachers who are out here teaching for liberation. You are not, in, until you get into a place that loves you, until you get into a place that is going to nurture you and care for you, you're going to be bounced. Right. You want to be bounced from school to school to school to school to school. And yeah. I've seen it happen with mentor teachers of mine. They were really out here doing that work. Um, I forgot this teacher name. But she got bounced. And she ended up going school to school to school within the district. They kept her in the district, but they bounced her around. Yeah. Um, because she was radical. Because she was out here really doing that work. Um, and not any work of putting children in harm's way or any danger. But she was out here really teaching about the real issues. Yeah. Uh, moving on from there, from that session, we went to a session on um, using our voices, and it's more of a session about getting your EDD or PhD, um, and what that looked like. And I know you just came out of the PhD application cycle, um, and I'm getting ready to get into the PhD application world to apply for a PhD. Um, right. So. I wanted to kind of touch on that before we call it a show. I got you. So I will let you start with what that's been like. Um, oh, that's who did it. You know, I had to go Google. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I can see that. Yeah, he don't know no better. But anyway, <laughs> um, and he should know because... Clearly. But anyway, I digress. Um, start, so start with what that process has been like with for you. I know you just completed your IRT application. I know you have been doing um, like uh, essays, and I know you've been reaching out for letters of rec. And talk about some of the challenges that you encountered doing that. Ooh. And talk about what made you want to pursue that PhD, and then I'll follow up. Okay. Um. So, for those of you who don't know, IRT is Institute for Recruitment of Teachers, and it's a very unique program that takes students from marginalized backgrounds who are interested in graduate work and able to teach. Um, So, getting master's and PhDs and able to go into either the K-12 classroom or higher ed um, to be teachers for social change and social justice. Um, So, that's their goal, to take students from marginalized communities and put them in um, master's and or PhD programs in order for them to graduate and teach. I have been teaching now for a number of years. I started teaching in Mississippi um, informally while I was in college. Um, Taught TA as an undergrad, which is very interesting because I ended up like teaching intro to theater 
one hour and then the next hour I had to go sit beside the same people I was just teaching in English class. <laughs> and that was very weird because I'm like, like, yeah, you sit right beside us now. Well, now what? And it was very weird. <laughs> um, but I did that and um, moved to Providence, Rhode Island, did city year for half a half a year. Did I join or I started working for the Providence After School Alliance, became a teaching partner um, with the charter school here. And then I um, went back to grad school, um, obtained my teaching license, and then became a sixth grade English teacher. Sixth grade English and history teacher. So I've been teaching for a number of years, doing a number of things. Um, and I kind of crawled and climbed my way up in this K-12 system test. Um, from a substitute teacher to a, a AmeriCorps volunteer to an after-school um, activity provider to a teaching partner, um, assistant teacher-like type situation, and then to a formal classroom teacher. So I've done... And I've been in elementary school classrooms. I've been in middle school classrooms. I've been in high school classrooms and working with students in many, in multiple college classrooms in multiple different ways. And I can say this system don't love us. Mm -hmm. This system don't love us. And it takes a special type of person to be um, in the K-12 system. Um, Mm -hmm. And it takes some special strength and some special support for um, people that are in the K-12 system. Um, and I think that support starts not only like that support should not only be given while you're coming up from K through 12 as a student. You need support there in your building, um, but also when you get into college. When you get into college, you need the proper support systems put into place that's going to help you, guide you, challenge you to think critically about the world around you. Um, I, in doing this work for a number of years on the K-12 level, I think that's where I need to be. Um, I don't think I ever stopped working with school age kids or, um, I have a theater certification. I would love to open up my own theater, um, and work with school age children and do critical plays that really address systemic issues. But I am pursuing my PhD in performance studies and or Africana studies because I want a terminal degree to go back and work at a HBCU like Jackson State University, which is where I graduated from, and um, do really do that work to challenge minds, um, to think critically, to engage um, in critical ways with their environment and the environment around them. So that's why I'm going through and trying to get a PhD at this point. Got you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard because, I mean, I've been having some of those same, like, challenges. And so, like you mentioned I did finish the PhD um, process, and, and I did it alone. I didn't do it through the uh, IRT, which was an extra challenge and burden and very hard. And I also did it while teaching um, seven higher higher ed classes, while also trying to figure out my life, et cetera, et cetera. So I really pushed myself um, in multiple ways, staying up like, late to finish application, reaching out to folks to s- submit my letters of rec, and, and, and it was hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had support. And so I think the reason why I'm pursuing a PhD now and mirrors a lot of what you said, right? So this um, recognizing that this system doesn't love us, recognizing that... Not even on a collegiate level. Now, I don't even want to make it seem like it loves us on a collegiate level. No, it no, doesn't no, no, love no, us no. On any should, level. no, nothing. No, it don't, period. 
even more so hates you on that level because your black body shouldn't have gotten here. It shouldn't be here. You shouldn't be allowed to publish next to me. You shouldn't be able to have an office next to mine. You shouldn't be able to attend faculty. I mean, you, your, your intellectual uh, property shouldn't be as valuable as mine. And hell, in some cases, it won't be as valuable as theirs. Um, so no, but recognizing that this system don't, doesn't love me, won't pay me, won't provide safety, security for me or my students, and recognizing that the only purpose that I was serving in those institutions was literally to protect my kids, mm -hmm. which was unfair to me and unfair to them. Because I am an education professional. I should be there teaching you. I should be there instructing you, facilitating, and being um, someone that you can reach out to for more than just social emotional support. Mm -hmm. And I became a social emotional sponge and I became, um, and, and still am in multiple ways in higher ed, but at least in higher ed, I'm provided with a little bit more, um, support, a little bit more freedom and a little bit more leeway to be exactly who I want to be. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, which is different. The only problem is, is because I don't have the PhD, I'm not paid what I should be paid. Um, to be teaching higher ed. And I'm also given an unmanageable schedule that is uh, unworkable. And I'm in many ways ineffective because of it. So definitely knowing that I do need to go back and get the proper degree so that I can, one, um, be able to sustain, sustain myself in some ways in that system. Mm -hmm. Um is why I'm pursuing it. And and I and I've already received, you know, some rejection letters and it and it was hard. It was very, very hard to get a rejection letter. And also for folks who don't know me, um I just I don't have that experience. I've never really been rejected from anything before. And so uh, it was it was humbling, but it was also hurtful. Um, and right now I'm waiting to hear back from my alma mater, UAB, to decide if I'm going to stay. University in of Alabama, Birmingham? Huh? You mean the University of Alabama, Birmingham? Yeah, the University of Alabama, Birmingham. Yeah, my bad. Um, so my, um, my alma mater. And I'm going, look at you. Um, let's expound on that. There are many UABs all over the world. I just wanted the people to be able to know where you're going to school. <laughs> gotcha. So uh, I'm waiting to hear back from UAB, um, the University of Alabama at Birmingham, to decide if I'm going to stay or remain in Birmingham. And if not, I have a Pennsylvania teaching license, so I'm licensed to teach uh, history, social studies, 7 through 12 mm -hmm. in the state of Pennsylvania. And so if I don't get into that school, I, I will be um, moving to Pennsylvania to use my teaching license. And then next year I will apply for a Ph.D. using the IRT. Hey, um, what I'm about to say. Yeah. So like getting the Ph.D. for me is about teaching, but also about the research component of it. Like I'm not. And I think I fought this for a long, long time that I was a researcher. I was a reader. I was a researcher. I enjoy researching and I enjoy writing. I enjoy um, expounding upon theories, um, coming up with theories, um, really seeing theories play out and trying to put theories into practice and writing about how they turned out for me. I enjoy doing stuff like that. And I, because... 
academia is so demonized in our communities, in our circles, I strayed away from that. I kind of tried to keep it secret that I like doing this. I like um, working on this. I like reading theory. I like seeing how it play out and writing about it. Um, I remember last year you would make fun of me. You'd be like, you are really reading this whole book for this paper. Right. I'm like, we don't have time, brother. We don't have time, brother. <laughs> but um, I like reading, and I like reading the theories, and especially when it's a when it's a theorist that I give a, a care about. Like, if it's like Bloom, you you can have that. You can have Bloom. I ain't trying to read no book by Bloom. Um, <laughs> if it's Bell Hooks, give it to me. Bring it on. Come on yeah. with the come on. But um, you can have all of basically white scholars like you that aren't really talking about liberation and freedom and really addressing systemic issues you can have them like i don't i'm not really interested in in that because we also i feel it's saturated with stuff like that um but yeah it has been writing these essays um really thinking about what it is i want to study in grad school and because irt really makes you nail that down um has really been eye-opening for me um it's led me to do further reading and research and um reading different texts and different authors different theorists about different things has really made me horn in on what i want to do and what i love to do what i want to do and um being invested in reading and studying this topic for the next five to six years yeah Uh, because that's what it is with a phd and like i said Mm -hmm. i want to get the phd to go back to go back to jackson state university in jackson mississippi or go to alcorn state university or go to mississippi valley state university or go to go to morehouse or go i have to go on that one because i don't know morehouse um go to Howard, go to Hampton, uh, go to Spelman, et cetera, et cetera, right? And Spelman, like go back to my HBCUs and and seek to work there because why I think higher ed isn't a loving place. I think that is unique, is a unique experience to work at a HBCU. And we need more black doctors. We We need black doctors. We need black academics. We just do. We do. We do, like, yeah. we do. This is like we just do, um, and we need them at the white schools too. We need them there too. We need black doctors. Black doctors are important, most definitely. And so, I, I, I definitely think that conversation needs to be had with more of us to become theory. You know, Bell Hooks talks about us needing to theorize us, the need to theorize and the utility of theory. And so I, I agree with that so, so much. And and that's why I am a theory. That's why I'm a culture, cultural crit- critic. I provide social commentary and I do theorize. And, and I think it's important. Um, and, and I'm excited for whatever this journey is. And if I don't get into UAB, which would be devastating, um, I will be moving to Philly, and I will be trying again next year. Exactly, and it's trying and trying and trying again. Um, I think persistence is the is the end game here. Like you just have to be persistent, even once we get into programs. 
because we all know PhD programs aren't the most loving places for black and brown bodies. Right. But once you get into your program, um, kind of like pledging, they say the hard work begins after you after you cross after you cross the burning sands. I think the hard work begins definitely after you after you get accepted into a PhD program and you go into these spaces and you're there and you're trying to study and write and theorize and and be loved and love other people and uh but persistence is what is going to get us through um, the application phase. Persistence is what is going to get us through um, getting accepted through that first three years. I theorize that after I get through the first three years, I'm in. I'm a real PhD student at that point. Once I get through that first three years, I do that lit, uh, the comps and read all that literature and I pass my comps. I feel like I'm in. I feel like I'm good from there. Then yeah. I'm out here doing field research and trying to write this dissertation, which I think I'm going to thoroughly enjoy writing my dissertation because I'm a writer. So I think I'm going to thoroughly enjoy writing my <laughs> dissertation. Well, I don't know about that because even writers I know hate their dis- Everybody I know hates writing their dissertation. No. <laughs> yeah, but it's going to be cool. Um, So I'm going to end with um, if you have any information or if you know um of any girls or boys who are um who are caught up in human trafficking the national human trafficking resource center number is 1-888-373-7888 again that number is 1-888-373-7888 and that's the national human trafficking resource center and yeah and the IRT. Um, how do they do the IRT if they want to do the IRT? So you can literally Google IRT application. The um, acronym IRT stands for Institute for Recruitment of Teachers. The deadline is April 1st. So the deadline is vastly approaching. So if you would like to be a part of this program, I suggest you go ahead and get the ball going now. You need to work double time because those essays ain't nobody joke. So you need to work overtime if you're going to try to get this application in by April 1st. Um, If not this year, you can still apply to grad school even without the IRT. My advice for that is to make sure you have you some good, because this is my plan if if I don't get accepted to IRT, which I probably will. So I'm just going to speak it into existence. But for a chance I don't, inshallah I do, I will be reaching out to mentors, um, friends, who are in academia, um, former professors, all these people to read personal statements, look over writing samples, um, and really trying to hone in on a research focus, hone in on faculty members in which you're trying to study with, make sure the school you're trying to go to, you have a good mentor. Um, Mentors make or break your PhD experience. So make sure you have a really good mentor that is invested in your well-being and is interested in what you have to say and what you are researching. Um, Outside of that, I would say once you get accepted into PhD programs, make sure you have a good cohort around you. Make sure they're giving you your coins, as in your ducats, as in your money, because you need money, because you will not be able to have a job and do this work. So um, I'm going to continue to keep us updated on what grad school and what PhDs are looking like for me. And I want to say thank you to Monique. Do you have Monique's um, business? What was her business again? 
I don't have it with me, but we'll put it on the website. We'll put it on the um, Facebook page. Well, thank you, sister, for um, doing our art for our podcast. And if anyone out there knows how to record a theme song and can help us out with recording a theme song, providing us with a beat, any beat makers out there, anybody that's on Fruity Loops, ain't, ain't Fruity Loops one of the, the places? Yeah, yeah. Anybody that know how to work Fruity Loops really well or Acid uh, really well and can make us some dope beats um, or a dope beat for our intro, that would be really, really great. Um, also, thank you to the sister Reza for helping me out and um, helping me record this show, giving me tips on how to use GarageBand. It was very helpful. Thank you very much. All right, guys. Peace and love. All right. Love you. Bye.